Welcome to the Pinoy Podcast. I've been working with Moxie for many years as one of the first to adopt near-infrared spectroscopy as a direct measure of oxygen delivery and utilization and hemoglobin concentrations at the muscle and combining it with metabolic analysis to be able to accurately evaluate cardiovascular, respiratory, and metabolic systems during exercise. Through this process, not only able to identify system-specific limitations to function and performance, but we are able to accurately identify intensity zones that demonstrate change over time through retesting. Today, we have a, our guest is Evan Pycon. He is a pioneer in using near-infrared spectroscopy with resistance training. And it's a real joy to, to invite him onto the podcast and get his impression of how to be able to use NEARS or near-infrared spectroscopy when uh, doing resistance training. Uh, welcome, Evan. Hey, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's an absolute joy. I've been following you for years um, and really interested because obviously I'm using NEARS more for uh, testing metabolic systems and cardiovascular systems, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, you have really brought this forward on using NEARS for resistance training and in a way that, uh, that nobody else has and in a way that's very difficult. Everybody wants to know you know, how many, what load should I use? Uh, you know, uh, how many reps, how many sets, what's my work to rest ratio? How much rest, how much rest do I need between sets? And you have found a way of using NEARS uh, to, to be able to really clarify this for people doing resistance training. So it's a real joy to have you here. Thank you, appreciate it. Well, let's start off in a normal way. Let's, uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, education, mm -hmm. and uh, the company that you developed. Yes, I'll start with my education since that's kind of a jumping off point for a lot of what I do these days. So I did my undergrad in interdisciplinary biology and I did a specialization in biochemistry and molecular and cellular biology. And after I got out that degree, I started doing some research in clinical microbiology. And throughout that entire period, I was working as an SNC coach. And shortly after, I started transitioning a lot of my research focus towards integrated physiology, where I just found that that aligned a little bit more with my personal interests than swabbing Petri dishes in a wet lab. And that wasn't really my thing at the time. So... Along the way, I ended up doing a graduate certificate in medical physiology and pharmacology, and that's where I started getting a lot deeper into mechanisms and different pathologies that we could spot. And at some point, I came across MOXIE, and that really shook up my understanding of a lot of the concepts that I thought I knew so well. Like a lot of MOXIE users, everyone has the same story. They put a MOXIE on their vastus lateralis or their erectus femoris and they hop on a bike and they do a wind gate assessment. And the first thing that you see is that oxygen is immediately utilized at a very fast rate. At the time I was like, this device is a piece of junk. It doesn't work. And it wasn't until I started understanding bioenergetics through a little bit more of a contemporary lens that I started really understanding what I was seeing on the MOXIE. And over time I started looking into other applications for that technology where we didn't really have um, great ways of uh, measuring things, particularly with strength training, like you mentioned. On the endurance side, there's a lot of technologies that have been used for a while. We could use metabolic acid analysis. We could do VO2 max testing, you could pull blood lactate. For strength athletes, we didn't really have anything except maybe velocity-based training. But even so, VBT tells us what, but it doesn't really tell us why. So that's initially where I became interested in using Moxie for those applications. Yeah, I, these I, days... talk lot, I, I talk a lot about the difference between an assessment and a test. Mm -hmm. And, and you're yeah. right, you know, VBT is an assessment, um, but it doesn't tell you why. And if it doesn't tell you why, it's not a test. Yeah, and it's funny because that's where I think something like Pinoe is so valuable too. I used to get really frustrated when athletes would go out and they would go to a lab and get a VO2 max test on. And the lab would just scrub all of the useful data and they would just give them their VO2 max metric. And my athletes would come and say like, hey coach, what do we do with this? I'm like, we don't do anything with this because we don't know why that that is your VO2 max. Right, I so, agree that you, you, you would love uh, some of our presentations on this is like you said, dude, a lot of, a lot of labs just throw out the really important information and then mm -hmm. they take something like a VO2 max, uh, a number, and they start doing math on it 
despite the fact they have access to all the science. Yeah. And I think this is really where the rubber hits the road for me. Like I actually come from an endurance sport background as a middle distance runner. So I ran the 800 meter. I also would push up to the mile and two mile if someone really held my feet to the fire. So when I first got interested in resistance training and working with CrossFit athletes, I was trying to take this analytical approach that we see in the endurance community. I was very well versed in that. But then when I started transitioning to strength training and working with CrossFit athletes, no one was really taking a very analytical approach to it. So I started spending a lot of time in those communities and trying to bring technologies from the endurance world like Moxie. That's really where it got its start and seeing what we could do with it. And that's where I ended up getting involved with Moxie from a strength training standpoint and load management standpoint. And these days I kind of bounce around between a few different jobs using these kinds of devices, depending on what day of the week you catch me, I'll either be coaching um, doing research or doing some form of translational science and research and design for different organizations where we're trying to take basic research and come up with solutions like using Moxie or thermography for strength training and load management. So it's kind of a big picture overview of the different projects that I'm involved in right now. Excellent. Absolutely. What I loved about the first time you put Moxie on was this whole concept of aerobic and anaerobic. Mm-hmm. Um, when you put a moxie on and you see that the maximum amount of oxygen used is in quote unquote anaerobic intensities and you realize the whole concept which is wrong the terminology is completely wrong mm-hmm. yeah and it's funny how far up the chain that even goes in traditional educational environments like i've taken medical physiology courses at a medical school and when we took a brief little day lecture on bioenergetics we are literally taught the traditional this is anaerobic this is aerobic but those charts that you see in every coaching textbook and taking the exams for those i'm like do i write the answers through this traditional lens or should i just like throw a wrench in this and write what i know to be true based on my experience and i'm like how do i really navigate this and that's one of the things that I've loved listening to some of your talks where you're using things like Moxie and Pinoe in conjunction with each other. It's you're taking a metabolic gas analyzer, which has been used in endurance sports in different contexts for a long period of time, but you're also taking these contemporary bioenergetic pieces. And when you mix those two together, you get such a unique perspective. Yeah. I mean, it all becomes clear uh, when you, it's complex to learn um but uh but once you once you learn it it becomes absolutely clear what the limiters are and and where they need to train uh to be able to make a difference in their performance so it's uh, yeah. i find it a real joy i'm now passing this on through the pinoy uh metabolic analysis certification um, mm-hmm. we realized that there was really nothing out there that that brought all these pieces together and that includes um, Moxie, because uh, not only do I think it adds a lot to metabolic analysis for for uh, uh, testing, like ramp testing, uh, but I, I need an answer to how to prescribe resistance training, and uh, this is where I get to I get to come and learn from you about uh, the proper ways of applying a, a device that I've used for years in a in a much different way, but much needed way in this world. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, for the purpose of our audience uh, who are, are not familiar with near-infrared spectroscopy, and in particular the MOXIE, can you describe you know, what kind of information that MOXIE gives you? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so to give a big picture overview, so like you said, a MOXIE is a near-infrared spectrometer, so it's using optics, and essentially the way a MOXIE works is it shines a light into a muscle, And that light reacts with hemoglobin and myoglobin, which are the oxygen-carrying molecules in the blood and the muscle, respectively. And both of those molecules are chromophores. So if they're bound to oxygen or unbound to oxygen, they're going to reflect back different colors or wavelengths of light, to use a more accurate term. Where this becomes really useful for us is it allows us to assess both the density of hemoglobin and myoglobin in a muscle tissue in live time. So it could give us a proxy on blood volume changes. And it's also going to tell us out of all of that blood that's in the muscle, how much of it is oxygenated. This becomes so useful, particularly from a strength training standpoint, because we know exactly what type of reaction we want if we want someone to get muscular hypertrophy. 
and up until now, there is no way to know if someone was actually getting one of those reactions. Like we said earlier, the only technologies that people really had for strength training were bar velocity trackers, BBT, maybe using force plates in some context. None of those give us any indication of the bioenergetics of the muscle or what's happening with blood volume in live time. So this is where I think Moxie really allows us to individualize strength training, both in terms of intensities, reps within a set, rest intervals. There's really limitless applications. Excellent. And, and from my perspective, the way, the way I teach it, and, and you know, this comes from York Feldman, is the idea of uh, delivery and utilization. You, you can see the delivery of oxygen to the muscle and uh, how much the, or how, what's the muscle's metabolism's capability of using the oxygen that's delivered. Mm -hmm. And it's a direct measure. We measure through blood gases by looking at expired O2 and CO2. And we can extrapolate that this is uh, the, where the oxygen is uh, being uptaken is in the muscle. But with MOXIE, you can actually, um, measure it directly at the muscle, which is outstanding. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things that Moxie does is traditionally people sub sub segmented what they would call endurance training, resistance training. And they're two completely unrelated things that have nothing to do with each other. But what you quickly find is that they're really not all that different from each other. Like the way that I always explained it is the body speaks very few languages. One is mechanical tension. One is bioenergetics and like strength training, energy system training, they're all the same thing. Like it's the amount of tension on the muscle. It's the relationship between oxygen delivery and utilization. So it's just a different expression of the same system. So it makes sense that we could use the same technologies for both of these activities. Absolutely. So uh, let's, let's try and give uh, a, a more uh, visual representation of uh, a MOXIE sensor and uh, the size of it and where you place them and, and, and why you place them where you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a Moxie sensor, it's a relatively small device. They're about an inch and a half long and inch wide. And depending on the application, you could use one sensor, you could use two, three, four, and a lot of it's going to depend on the context. When we're doing resistance training, I tend to use it in a few different ways. If we're Using an exercise that is very localized in nature, for example, for doing something like a bicep curl, it's very straightforward. We don't really need to worry about someone having a systemic limitation when they're using their biceps. So what I'll typically do is I'll put a moxie on the muscle belly of the bicep, and that will allow us to see changes in blood volume and changes in the relationship between oxygen supply and delivery in live time. What becomes really interesting, depending on what muscle you monitor, though, is when you don't actually see the intended response. So we assume that just because someone's doing an exercise and they're pushing themselves to failure, that they're growing that muscle. And what becomes abundantly clear is that a lot of athletes who call themselves hard gainers or have trouble building strength or muscle, they're just not really training what they think they're training. So you'll see an athlete and they're like, whatever I do, I can't grow my biceps. And you're like, okay, let's put a moxie on your bicep hop on the bench, take this set of curls to failure and let's see what happens. And they'll take a set of curls to failure. And you're like, well, I know why you didn't grow your biceps. You clearly weren't creating tension in your biceps and you were not desaturating that muscle. So you were doing work. It just wasn't with your bicep. So you could also have a secondary muscle placement. Maybe we put it on the anterior delt and we see that when they're doing bicep curls, they're actually um, lifting their humerus and using their anterior delt to contribute to most of that work. And they're failing on the bicep curl when their anterior delt gives out, not when their bicep gives out. So that's just a really simple explanation of it. We could also do something similar with like a back squat, for example, which is a lot more systemic in nature. There's a lot of axial load, a lot of athletes, you'll hear people say it all the time. Like the back squat is like the king of exercises for muscle hypertrophy. If you're not back squatting, you're never going to grow like the muscles in your legs and you'll put a moxie on the muscles in their legs and also pop one on maybe a spinal erector and I'll pop one on a non-involved muscle. We could do like a forearm or a deltoid and we'll see what happens when you do a higher up set of back squats. For some athletes, you'll see they fail when their spinal erectors deoxygenate. So they're they, getting a really they're good. developing the muscle tension in the, in the quad <laughs> hamstring or the glute because the yeah. back is what's, uh, what's limiting them. 
Yeah, you're like the back squat is a great hypertrophy exercise for you. It's just great for your spinal rectors, not any of the muscles that you want to train. Or you might see in athletes who are a little bit less deconditioned, you could spot signs of like a systemic limitation. So a lot of times you'll see athletes do things like German volume training, like 10 reps at 50% of a one rep max and rest a minute and repeat that over and over. And you'll see that they fail on set four or five. And they're like, oh, I'm smoking my quads. And you're like, well, we actually see signs of vasodilation in the non-involved muscle. So you're actually challenged more by your cardiopulmonary system, which is great. But if you want to hypertrophy a muscle, you want a localized limitation in the muscles you're trying to grow. So we could also use Moxie for things that you would think fall more in the endurance sport realm of applications, but it actually exposes why some hypertrophy training protocols just don't really work. And it's a funny thing to say, but I end up telling some bodybuilders that I consult with like, hey, you're just not in good enough shape to do these protocols and make them hypertrophy work. Yeah, I mean, and that, it's great. Like, I mean, my, my next question, we've already started kind of moving into it because it's, it's such a natural flow. But what have you discovered about resistance training through the process? Yeah, so one of the big things for me, and this was like my first kind of mind-blowing realization, is a lot of the traditional resistance training assessments don't actually test what we think they test. So when I first started getting involved in training competitive athletes, this was 15 years ago, one of the big tests that I saw used all the time in the strength training, bodybuilding, and CrossFit community, so people would call an NME test or a neuromuscular efficiency test. I believe this was popularized by Charles Poliquin initially. And the way that the test works is they would have someone build to a one rep max back squat, rest until recovery, and then they would take 85% of their one rep max and they would say, rep this out until complete failure. And people who prescribe or abide by this test would say, if you get one, two or three reps at 85% before you fail, you're very high neuromuscular efficiency. If you get 10 to 15 reps, you're low neuromuscular efficiency and it's on a spectrum. In Initially, I'm like, oh, that, that makes some degree of sense. You would think the amount of reps you could get at 85% says something about your fiber distribution or your neuromuscular efficiency. But the first thing that really started to blow my mind is when I'd put moxies on people and have them test that. And what we saw was actually quite a bit different. People who would fail with two to three reps, it didn't necessarily say something about their neuromuscular efficiency. Those individuals would restrict arterial blood flow on the first rep, so they're not getting blood into the muscle, they're not getting waste products out, and as soon as muscle oxygen saturation bottomed out, they would fail. People who would get 10, 12, 15 reps, they would typically get venous occlusion, so venous blood isn't escaping the muscle, but arterial blood is still entering, so they're getting some degree of oxygen delivery, albeit they're not clearing waste products. And for those individuals, they would continue performing reps and maybe on the 12th or 15th rep when their bar velocity was slowing down and they're really starting to grind, they would cut off arterial blood flow and then they would fail as well. So it started to raise the question for me like, well, this is a quote unquote neuromuscular efficiency test. But what it really looks like is that people are failing on this test when they can't deliver oxygenated blood to the working muscle. Through a traditional lens of bioenergetics, we would say, oh, that can't make sense because this is a lactic anaerobic work or anaerobic power work. And it's like, well, throw out that traditional model of bioenergetics. And we realize that this is lactic. This is aerobic. Like everything is everything. So your ability to perform reps at a fixed percentage of your one rep max says less about your neuromuscular efficiency. And it says more about the relationship between your cardiac output and your ability to create tension in the local muscle. And one of the big critiques that I heard with this initially is they'd say, well, the people getting 10, 12, 15 reps, they're just weak. And that's why they could do a ton of reps. And then I would show them data. Hey, this is one of my athletes that has a 550 pound back squat and they just hit 14 reps at 85%. Yeah. Are they weak or like, what are we dealing with here? So, yeah, there's, there's no way that we can, we, we can isolate the input from the respiratory, the cardiovascular and the muscle uh, metabolic system, considering the amount of interactions and how one system can affect the other. Um, yeah. e even I, I would say that there's a role for um, analyzing their breathing method. Um, mm -hmm. Because you, like you said, you know, being able to get the O2 delivered, the respiratory system is extremely important. 
um, and getting rid of the CO2, but even for to be able to develop spinal stiffness, to be able to develop peripheral power, it requires you to be able to move a certain volume uh, of air, so some some uh, mobility within your diaphragm, as well as uh, being able to use the diaphragm uh, as a muscle itself to be able to stabilize the spine. Yeah, absolutely. And then even I work with a lot of CrossFit competitors. So it, CrossFit is an endurance sport in some ways, but it's really doing a bunch of barbell exercises for high reps and where we could even take it as like, well, athletes with very poor breathing mechanics, they can't utilize the thoracic pump to allow for better venous return as well. So the same thing could apply for a back squat. Someone that fails at three, four reps. One of the things that was always really interesting to me is we could just work on their breathing mechanics and show them how to breathe when they're doing back squats. And a week later, they would get five or six reps at 85%. Is their neuromuscular efficiency changing in a one week period? Probably not. So we could really start. And I don't mean to just tear apart these traditional frameworks, but I think it's important to acknowledge what our tests are actually testing for. Otherwise, the training protocols that we produce on the back end of these are going to be less than ideal for athletes. Yeah, and I think that's the, like you said, the, the joy of combining uh, metabolic analysis and gas analysis with, with NEARS. It, it just, it's more information to be uh, clearer about how each system is contributing. And then you can figure out the limiter and, and it could be any one, uh, any one of them. But the thing is that, you know, if you can't measure them all, uh, then you're not excluding the other. And let's say if there is a respiratory limitation, like you said, it will have a profound effect on the cardiovascular and the metabolic systems. You may want to go after training them, but not have the effect that you expect because the fact you haven't really addressed the true limitation. Yeah, and I think this is where it's great to have things like Pinoe or Moxie. Traditionally, I remember even a decade ago, I wanted to start doing more testing and I looked in at the time, we've got the cheapest metabolic acid analyzer you could find was $35,000. And I was like, well, I'm a college student. I'm probably not going to be able to afford that. I looked EMGs. Some of them were $15,000, $25,000. Where Pinoe and Moxie, it really brings the like gold standard of lab-grade equipment to the gym. And we could use it at a CrossFit setting. We could use it out on the road with our athletes. So I think that's one of the other things that makes these technologies so appealing is even in the resistance training world, using EMG allows us to get some of this data as well, but EMG is so impractical yeah. to use one because of the cost is absolutely absurd in some instances. And it's also difficult to get an EMG into a commercial gym. You have a big unit, you have an athlete, with a bunch of wires hanging off of them. It's not a very practical way to test individuals particularly with CrossFit athletes when they're doing dynamic movements in a very fast paced environment. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to take this, uh, just keep following along this line of thought. Um, you know, one of the best parts of, of doing metabolic analysis, uh, is to be able to identify limiters and then prescribe the right exercise programming to affect change. How do you use Moxie, um, to assess, um, assessment tool for resistance training yes so there's a few different things that i'll do with moxie one is if we look at the hypertrophy literature there's a queer relationship and on average we see that as long as someone is using between roughly 30 and 90 percent of a one rep max and they take a set to volitional failure those sets are going to be roughly equivalent in terms of the net stimulus for hypertrophy that's all well and good but 30 to 90% is a population level average. For one individual, it might be 15 to 80%. For another, it might be 45 or 50 to 95%. So a lot of times I've worked with a few like natural bodybuilders as well, where they'll tell me I'm using evidence-based training protocols and we'll start digging through their training. And I'm like, great, based on the literature, everything that you're doing makes a ton of sense. You're splitting your volume between 30 and 90% you're using what seems to be an effective set range. And then we'll start actually using the Moxie to assess one, at what percent of their one rep max on a given muscle do they transition from getting a compression reaction to a venous occlusion to an arterial occlusion? If we want to get muscular hypertrophy, having a light muscle compression where we're just squeezing some blood out of the muscle and letting it return when we're releasing the contraction is not gonna be sufficient. 
because there's something called an oxygen conforming response as blood is blood flow is restricted to a muscle and as we deoxygenate a muscle we get progressive increases in neuromuscular recruitment and knowing that mechanical tension is the primary driver of hypertrophy if we're not getting that recruitment we're not hypertrophying a muscle if you're getting a light muscle compression reaction you're not going to desaturate a muscle to failure on an isolated exercise so for some individuals they transition from that compression to a venous occlusion Easiest way to explain a venous occlusion, if you've ever gotten like a pump doing a set of bicep curls, that's a venous occlusion in the simplest terms. Blood's getting into the muscle. It's not escaping the muscle. Some individuals make that transition at 15% of their one rep max. Some individuals make that transition at 50% of one rep max. Typically, the people who are hard gainers in the traditional strength training or hypertrophy training protocols don't work very well for them. They tend to occlude at very high percentages of their one rep max. So I might take that athlete who's doing training in those research-backed ranges, but if they don't occlude until 50% of their one rep max on a number of their major muscle groups, a large percentage of their training between 30 and 50% is wasted volume. It's yeah. not doing anything effective. It's driving fatigue. It's driving muscle damage. There's nothing good about that for an athlete whose sole goal is to gain muscle. So that's one way we could use it. We could also use it to... Uh, determine effective volumes for a single muscle within a session and across a week. So even in the hypertrophy training literature, it's funny because you look at the meta-analysis on how much volume could we do for a single muscle in a single session before it's maladaptive. And the range in the research is four to 16 sets. Uh, that's incredibly useful. It could be four sets or it could be quadruple that. Like if you could raise the low end volume and square it, and that's also within the range of effective volume. That's not an effective strategy. So what the MOXIE allows us to do is we can look at set to set changes in blood volume and oxygen kinetics. So if I'm doing a set of preacher curls, for example, at the MOXIE on my bicep, and I desaturate that muscle down to 10% on my first set, and I do another set of bicep curls and I desaturate it down again, maybe after five or six sets, I can't actually deoxygenate my bicep. And I'll also see I can't drive blood into that muscle as well. There's a few potential things that could ha be happening. One is that muscle protein breakdown could be outstripping muscle protein synthesis. So we're getting to a point where we're going to be damaging the muscle and that's going to interfere with our ability to utilize oxygen. Could also be that I'm getting a sub recruitment of the muscle, which would be more neurological in nature. But either way, whatever I'm doing past that point is either not going to provide additional uh, value to me or it's going to become maladaptive. So instead of blindly adhering to a training program and saying, I'm going to go in today and I'm going to hit 10 sets of biceps and eight sets of quadriceps, I'll go in and say, I have a range of volume that I want to work in today. The point at which I can no longer utilize that muscle effectively, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to save that volume for another day. So what we find is you might have an athlete doing the same volume as they were previously, but you'll be leveraging frequency to get that volume in strategically across a week. So now more of their volume is effective. And the last thing that we're going to individualize is one rest periods and also our exercise selection. Knowing that mechanical tension is the primary driver of hypertrophy and metabolic stress is a backdoor pathway to hypertrophy, most people correctly assume that you should be doing some degree of training to drive mechanical tension, some degree of training to drive metabolic stress. But I've never heard people think past that and say, well, is there specific exercises that lend themselves better to one or the other? There's a lot of talk about resistance profiles and strength curves in the hypertrophy world, but typically people just say, well, you want to load the muscle in a lengthened position, in a shortened position, you want to go work folks towards mechanical tension, metabolic stress, just mix that all together in some combination and you'll be fine. But one of the organizations that I've been doing research for, we've been studying the effect of different resistance profiles on the types of local muscle adaptations that you're going to get. And one of the things that we found is loading a muscle in a lengthened position lends itself better to mechanical tension bias training and loading a muscle in a shortened position lends itself better to training to drive metabolic stress. So knowing if we want to get both of those adaptations, we can not only split our training between the two, but we could also cater our exercise selection. So I'm not going to load the muscle in a lengthened position and say that that's going to be one of my mechanical or my metabolic stress workouts. 
because the effective volume that I'm going to be able to complete there is relatively low. And the delta THB or change in blood volume during an actual workout, it's extremely low because we're getting so much stretching and compressing of the blood vessels versus if I want to load a muscle in a shortened position, there's not that much mechanical tension going on there, but we could get a humongous delta THB and change in blood volume. And we could also keep the muscle in a deoxygenated state for a very long period of time, which we can't do in that length and position. So it really opens up a range of possibilities for hypertrophy training that I personally haven't seen these things discussed in that community at all outside of the one or two organizations I've done research with. Uh, this is so fascinating on um, what we've learned in, in just the, the last few years. Uh, what, what's interesting, I can, I can hear myself talking to endurance athletes. Um, you know, I, I talk about the, uh, you know, training physiology before function. Um, and when you get a cyclist, for example, and it's, it's usually cycling, uh, when they're at their highest intensities of a ramp test, you can differentiate that they're, they have not fully stressed their cardiovascular or respiratory systems. And you can tell at that particular point, they have a strength deficit. Yeah. Now, it, could, it could be a combination of strength and coordination. They don't know how to move that wattage uh, and be able to maintain a cadence. So it could be, but it's more, you, you get that idea of uh, that this is the load that they're having a hard time with. And people always ask me, you know, when, you know, especially cyclists who love to train using wattage versus like a real physiological uh, metric, even like heart rate, they seem to have a, a hate on for using heart rate. Um, if I don't pick up a physiological limitation at the end because of a strength deficit, that's when I use wattage training. And that's the whole idea is I want to change the loads to a point that it causes enough tension for their, them to be able to respond to that. I'll create a physiological limitation when they have the strength. Uh, and mm. yeah, and, and, but otherwise I won't find it at the highest intensities because that's what's limiting, limiting them is something that's more functional like strength. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things working with some endurance athletes as well that want to utilize strength training is one of the things that I found is I'll talk to an athlete and they'll tell me I'm already doing strength training. And I'm like, okay, great. What are you doing? Oh, yeah. So they'll tell me what they're doing. And a lot of times these athletes might even use Moxie and they've just never used it for their strength. I'm like, okay, do the strength protocols that you're telling me you're doing, put your Moxie on the working muscle and let's see what's happening. And a lot of times what you'll see is that you're like, well, you're not really creating a meaningful amount of tension. And one of the other things that we need to consider is, well, if you could create more tension, you could recruit more muscle that is going to improve your ability to utilize oxygen in those tissues. So if you're not creating that, central limitation when you're doing your ramp or step test it might be that you have a peripheral issue strength training is going to be one of the quickest and easiest ways to solve that yeah well that's outstanding and now let, let's talk you've got these great methods of, of assessing them and then you can be able to determine uh based upon their goal and their limitation uh you're able to prescribe uh the appropriate training uh can you can how do you use moxie during a training session yeah, so during a training session, typically what I'll do is I'll have a intended response that I want someone to get within the session. And the first thing that we're using Moxie for on set one is seeing, are they getting this intended response? There's a lot of other things we could do at Moxie, like auto-regulating training volume and rest periods and so forth. But if they're not getting the right response within the first interval, none of that's even going to matter to me. So one of the applications, and this is something I'll see very common in CrossFit athletes, and if if you've ever seen the way that they breathe, this will probably make sense to you. A lot of them, if you watch the games, you'll notice they take a breath in and their traps go up to their ears and they take a breath out and their traps drop down. And when you look at a lot of their posture, they're stuck in thoracic extension. So for example, if we are working with that athlete, if we want to get some uh, lateral delt hypertrophy for that individual, we might put a moxie on their delts. And my intent for that training day is we'll put the moxie on we'll start having them build and load. And I want to see when they transition from compression to venous occlusion. Then once we get to that point, I would say, okay, now let's have you do a lateral raise with that load until you bottom out muscle oxygen saturation. So your Delta SMO2 or your rate of change of oxygen becomes very negative and you desaturate the muscle quickly, then we'll rest and bring you to 
a baseline where oxygen and blood volume start to stabilize. Then we'll repeat that and use some other exercises until you can't deoxygenate. But oftentimes when we're starting to work with these athletes, I'll get the moxie set up on their delts. I'll put it on the secondary muscle and we'll start building up and I'll say they're not utilizing oxygen in their delts right now. So we can't even get to set one of this exercise because they're not getting the desired response. So one of the things that we see often, and this is where energetics and resistance training overlap in my mind is I'll look at their posture and I'll say, Oh, this guy's stuck in thoracic extension. Of course, he's not using his delts very well. And a lot of times that we see with these individuals, and I think this will parrot some of what you see as well is a lot of these athletes have expiratory muscle strength limitations. So a lot of them create these hyperinflation postures where they'll take these huge deep breaths in and they just don't breathe out and they get stuck in thoracic extension. So for these individuals, it's like, well, we came in today to work on their lateral delts and get some hypertrophy, but we can't even do that yet. So we might work on some drills and tactile cues and teaching them how to get like full exhales and breathing properly. We might end up having to make them get some manual therapy on the table that day to get their thorax and their pelvis into more of a neutral position. And once we could restore those positions, we pop the moxie on, the lateral delt work goes fine. So a lot of what we see with these individuals is also troubleshooting, like the step one, can you even isolate and train this muscle? A lot of times you'll see people with a lagging muscle group and they'll think, oh, I just need to hit this muscle with more volume. And the reality is a lot of times the position of their axial and appendicular skeleton is such that they're just not going to train that muscle. It's a movement issue before it could even be a resistance training issue. Assuming that is taken care of, that's where we start selecting exercises based on the day. There's some individual variability, like if I do a certain tricep exercise, I might not be able to desaturate in that position, or there might be an exercise that lends itself better to that for me specifically. Then I could use that to auto-regulate my set volume. I could use it to auto-regulate my rest periods. So it's taking a lot of these things that we've always done in the endurance training world and applying them to resistance training. Even 15 years ago, when I was a track and field athlete, my coach came in and he would have an idea of what adaptation we wanted to get on that training day. And he might manipulate our paces on the day. He might manipulate our rest times, our interval structures. And he was using his coach's eye for a lot of this. But in the hypertrophy training world, the mentality has always been, this is your workout for the day. No matter what happens, go in and do it. Oh, your bicep or your elbow hurts, do it anyway, because you need to be tougher. And now we're taking like these softer skills and some of these uh, sports science applications and bring it into a community that didn't traditionally use those things. Wow, that's just very exciting. Do you, would you mind uh, sharing a screen and kind of giving a visual uh, for, for our audience of, of yeah. how you use, use the data, what it looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Let me see if I can make this a little bit bigger for you. How does this look? Are you able to see this okay? Perfect. Okay, cool. So one of the first things that I'll do with athletes in a lot of instances, if particularly if I haven't worked with someone before, is the easiest test to do, and this is a nice one for an endurance athlete, is put the moxie on the muscle that you want to train and just tell them to isometrically flex that muscle. See if they could create tension there. If they're able to create tension, You'll see blood volume shoot up as soon as they start isometrically contracting and you'll see oxygen go down, then they relax and you see those reverse. Assuming a muscle's not injured, that's going to be the desired response that you want to see during resistance training as well. So you wanna see rapid oxygen utilization when you start a contraction, followed by a rapid period of recovery upon the sensation of contraction. You also want to see a blood flow trend indicating that either venous outflow or arterial inflow have been restricted as well as the return of blood flow to the tissues when you eventually relax the muscle. If we're not seeing one of those two things, that's going to be an instant red flag to us. Once we start getting more experience with these technologies, this is where I start moving away from those isometric tests and picking something that's a little bit more relevant to someone's sport. So this is a case where we have a athlete primarily does endurance training, and we're looking at left leg and right leg trends during resistance training. So I'd consider this more of a functional assessment for them. 
and instantly we could already spot some differences between their left leg and right leg and this is going to be common in a lot of endurance athletes i see this with track and field athletes because they turn left professionally so you usually see some unilateral discrepancies but you could see these manifest in a lot of other sports as well so this athlete on their repeated sets and this is with a moxie on their vl we see differences in desaturation between their left and their right leg then the picture above, we see that the left leg isn't desaturating to nearly as meaningful of a degree. On the lowest, the left leg is desaturating to 25%. On the lowest, the right leg is at 11%. At that, the highest- For our audience, that it means that uh, 25% of the hemoglobin uh, or myoglobin uh, is loaded with oxygen. Yep, exactly. And on the right leg, it's it's 11 to 14%. So the right leg is extracting and utilizing oxygen at a much greater rate compared to the left leg. And that's a relatively meaningful unilateral discrepancy given that these legs are doing the exact same activity and that they're being loaded in the same way. And you also see that- Delivery will be the same because it's not as if the, uh, if we bias delivery uh, to one leg mm -hmm. or the other, unless there's injury. Exactly. It's not like I have an arterial cuff on one of these athletes' legs. So this is where we do spot some differences actually due to some minor injuries. So we also see that the left leg has a little bit less steady flow to the tissues. During their recovery period, we see these minor compressions. We're on the right leg, we don't spot that. And we also see that the left leg fatigues much quicker. We see that after two sets, it's not able to desaturate down to the same degree. And on the right leg, it's desatting down to roughly the same amount on each work set. This is where you'd say, well, maybe the left leg's doing less work. Well, the athlete's doing a bilateral exercise. So it's not like they're squatting themselves up with one side more than the other. So this is where we get into the fact that this athlete's compensating. They're doing this resistance training bout, but they're not training the muscles that we want them to be training. So this is where we need to start troubleshooting. And for an endurance athlete, I'm always asking, is this a coordination issue? Like, do they not know how to do this movement properly? Which is why I'll usually start with much simpler exercises. I'm not going to take a cyclist who's been doing endurance training for 20 years and has never lifted a weight and put a barbell on their front rack and told them to front squat for high reps we might start with something much simpler with has less of a intermuscular coordination uh, demand or intramuscular coordination demands we could also use these same concepts for left and right assessments on very simple exercises trying to spot these discrepancies as well and i think going over some of these discrepancies is important because when things go well things go well the moxie basically tells us hey we did a good job and it's a nice ego boost for us but i think where this technology is the most useful is when our resistance training isn't doing what we want it to be doing so this is a case where i had an athlete doing isometric split squat holds so very simple exercise, you're literally in a split, split squat position and you're just holding yourself there. And we have a moxie on the left and the right vastus lateralis. And on sets number one and sets number three, the right leg is forward and it's the dominant working leg and the left leg is the trail leg, which is a stabilizing leg. On sets two and sets four, the left leg is the dominant working leg. So if we start with the right leg we get exactly what we wanna see on set one, which is a big venous occlusion in the vastus lateralis. That's the dominant working leg. We're creating a lot of tension. We're restricting blood flow. And we see that we're deoxygenating that muscle really well too. On set two, we see a compression reaction. That's the trail working leg. It's not doing much. So we wouldn't expect it to be creating a high percentage of a maximum voluntary contraction. And then set three, right leg is dominant working. Set four, it's trail leg perfect trend. But now we switch over to the left leg. They get a venous occlusion every single work set here. So even when the left leg is the trail leg that should be stabilizing, it's actually working very hard to contribute to that load. So this is a case where we're seeing the opposite. Instead of the left leg doing less work than the stronger leg, this is a case where it's a weaker leg and it's having to work much harder to stabilize. As a coach, if I were to only look at this athlete's objective data, I would say, hey, you did the hold on each side. You completed the sets. You completed the reps. You're good to go. Let's bump your load up again next week. Yeah. Two or three weeks later, my athlete might get injured. It's because we weren't able to see this unilateral discrepancy. We probably wouldn't have noticed it until we started getting to much heavier relative loads. But at that point, it's too late. 
And as a coach who does do some work with endurance athletes, particularly um, doing their strength training or their load management, I'm going to get fired if I get this athlete injured during their strength training. And their main sport coach is going to get very angry at me. So using Moxie is not only to individualize athletes training, it's also a fail safe mechanism that makes sure that we're not going to mess people up when we're doing their strength training because we're not spotting changes in coordination or changes in recruitment. And this allows us to identify a lot of these issues before they even become issues. Love it. I love the clarity. Yeah, that, that's one of the other great things. Once, obviously, learning how to use any new technology, it's like learning a new language. You're going to have to understand the vernacular and the syntax. And with Moxie, there could be a little bit of a learning curve. But once you learn how to spot these things, you look at these trends. And as I was describing this, you probably already saw that the athlete was getting um, unilateral discrepancies in the blood flow trend because you've been using Moxie much longer than I have. It's like a second language that once you know it, you know it, and you could see these things very quickly and easily. Yeah, with the with the endurance athletes, it's really interesting because you can you can see trends um, in in delivery. Yet, uh, if because of the fact that there's such a, a large involvement of the respiratory system, and the respiratory system can have such profound effects on muscle metabolism is that you have to go back to see perhaps if they're hyperventilating, for example, and hypocapnia at the, at the muscle and the O2 can't unload. It looks like Mm -hmm. a utilization issue when actually uh, it's an issue with the respiratory system, not allowing it to unload. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I kind of look at it as being delivery uh, and then offloading and then utilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the right things need to be there. And, and this is, uh, you know, if you see a trend like this with using a Moxie during a ramp test or a 515, the first thing you do is, is you go, is that really what I'm seeing? Or is this a symptom of a respiratory issue? And the ability, yeah. having the metabolic analysis data, that ability to go over to the respiratory data, go, no, breathing frequencies look within a normal range, volumes look good. Um, there is no issue happening here. So this is truly a, uh, muscle metabolism issue. Yeah. And this is where the like trifecta of technologies for me is like having a metabolic acid analyzer using a moxie and then even bringing something like thermography in. And I think of them as three overlapping Venn diagrams where in the middle, all three of them are going to give you some of the same information, but they all have subtleties and nuances that you can't get from the other. So in the instance that you just brought up where, yes, if you're creating a, hypocapnia and you're going to create that left shift in the oxygen dissociation curve and that's interfering with the muscle's ability to metabolize oxygen we could also spot another thing that might be influencing that because hypothetically let's say it's not a hypocapnia issue we're like okay well what, what the hell's going on now if we use thermography we might see that there's not hypocapnia but hypothermia in that tissue which would imply lowered metabolic activity So this is a case where there might be like a disruption of the normal fiber structure and that's going to influence it. And that impairs the ability of blood to get into the muscle. Um, It might might also be a nitric oxide issue and there's not the proper level of nitrosethyl, which kind of acts as like a missile guidance system for oxygen to be guided towards the mitochondria. So there are all these other uh, potential limitations that we could spot as well, which becomes really interesting. Yeah, I guess you, you spotted a lot of that in relation to your work with, uh, you know, ACL rehab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something um, I've done with a few different organizations and teams where we'll use Moxie and thermography as part of like a complementary return to play practice or even a load management practice in where that becomes valuable in the same way that Moxie and uh, Panoe could be used together for endurance assessments. And maybe we use like Moxie and EMG together in a clinic for someone with a neuromuscular issue. We could also use Moxie and thermography on the training table or when athletes are coming back from injury. And what's very interesting is that we spot things that are very complementary on these two technologies. You might see that an athlete has a hyperthermic issue. So they have a hyperthermic asymmetry, a tissue is very hot and inflamed. And what you'll see on the Moxie is what looks like a right shift in the dissociation curve. So they'll outstrip their oxygen supply very quickly. 
because in addition to carbon dioxide, nitric oxide, and diphosphoglycerate impacting hemoglobin and myoglobin's dissociation curves, temperature also does the same thing. So if you inflame a tissue or heat it up, you're going to shift that curve to the right versus if you cool a tissue down, you could shift it to the left. So in that case that we had just talked about with that athlete, they weren't left shifted because they were hypocapnic. They were left shifted because that tissue was very cold and it had a hypothermic region. So it's all these same physiological concepts, but just manifesting in different scenarios. And in these different scenarios, we could use different technologies to pick them up. It's all parts of the same puzzle. Wow, that's outstanding. We're not done yet, are we? I don't think so. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. And, and you've also done some consulting uh, with uh, special operations, special forces personnel as well. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so that that's bringing in a lot of the concepts we've been talking about. So. This is one of the populations where I think Moxie has a lot of utility, this and even professional sport teams, because typically when you're working with a lot of individuals at once, there's a very few number of coaches that are on the floor and actually working with them. So whether it's special operations or it's a basketball team, there might be one to three performance specialists and 20 to 100 individuals that they need to work with. And it could be really challenging to have to write that many individualized training programs. If we just think about it from a pure time constraint, it's probably not going to fly. So something like Moxie allows you to have more of a fixed or maybe auto-regulated training program and use the Moxie data to make tweaks and individualizations on the day. So for example, let's say we're working with a large body of individuals and we do some pre-testing to sub-segment 50 guys into two or three different populations. And we create like an avatar for that group. And we write a program for that avatar. We might come in on the day and we say, Hey, we're doing resistance training where uh, back squatting. And this is the relative load that you're using in the RPE that we want you to take your sets to. And we start walking around the room and all these guys have a moxie on their VL. Maybe they have a moxie on a rec fam and a non-involved muscle group, depending on how fancy we want to get. And we see one of these guys hey, he's back squatting, repping his sets out. He's not desaturating in the quadriceps. Maybe let's switch him to a front squat and get his heels elevated. See if he's desaturating now. Okay, he's good to go. We changed his movement and now he's getting the desired result. That other guy, hey, he's not uh, getting, we want them to get arterial occlusion today. He's not training heavy enough. Bump his load up by 10 to 15 pounds. See if he's getting arterial inflow restricted. Now he's good to go. So you could quickly walk around and look at the actual reactions that these guys are getting and make very dynamic changes on the fly. A similar thing could apply to endurance training as well. And then from a load management standpoint, things like thermography and NEARS could work really well together. If you imagine they quickly come through, do a quick thermography screen, see if at baseline there are any hypothermic or hyperthermic asymmetries. If there are, pop a moxie on that muscle and the same muscle insertion on the opposite side see what happens when they do their workout for the day, if they're creating any of these compensations. So it's taking these things that, sure, we could have a PT working with all of these guys one-on-one -on -one and parsing these things out, but you're streamlining the process and you're making the barrier to entry to flag these things very low that the average strength and conditioning coach who doesn't have experience with these things could now identify these issues and refer people out strategically when they need to. I, I think this is wonderful. Like, I can, Think of so many applications that our, our current Panoli owners uh, would benefit from uh, having a Moxie in, in relation to our testing, but also in conjunction with resistance training. So if you're looking at somebody who, let's say, has a, a relatively slow resting metabolic rate, uh, you know, a couple of conditions that could lead to this are, you know, excessive cardio training and then uh, mm -hmm. having uh, low skeletal muscle mass. Um, that is slowed down and then obviously chronic dieting so you can go through this and it's fairly easy to do a training and nutrition history to determine which factor or factors has contributed to their current status mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to resistance your goal will be hypertrophy you want to increase uh, their skeletal muscle mass and these are are people that are obviously not really drawn to doing resistance training or the resistance training that they have been doing has been uh, too light of a load, not causing the tension required to cause that muscle growth. 
Um, I could see our guys really being able to hone in at the right loads um, and the right work to rest ratios to be able to get truly great results uh, with people that are just plain trying to increase their rest and metabolic rate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's there's it so many good uses. Um, so I know I, I've worked, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of resistance athletes. And they, there seems to be a poo-pooing uh, of the need to do cardio training. The same thing with, you know, you don't need to do uh, your pro prolonged durations, lower intensity uh, training. Uh, all I need to do is do HIIT training, which they never do correctly. Uh, it's never hard enough. <laughs> so they, just, they just hang around in zone three and zone four. Um, do you, how do you think that cardiovascular, metabolic, and respiratory fitness contribute to a resistance athlete or a strength athlete? Yeah, so there's two different ways that this ties in. I'll touch on the performance side first, and I'll go into some of the health pieces. So it's actually interesting. I know you had uh, Founder Zedkin from Omega Wave on recently. I listened to that podcast, and it was great. And this is a concept. This was probably almost a decade ago. I had heard Val speak in a small private seminar. And one of the concepts that Valid talked about at the time that really struck a chord with me is this idea of training the trainability. So the way that Val described it was that there are some athletes and they might want to get a certain adaptation, but they don't have the requisite level of pre-training or this underlying foundation of adaptations to even do the form of training that they want to do. Right. So you might need to train this individual for a year before they could even do the kind of training that they want to. And this is something that became apparent to me when I started doing some consulting and getting data from uh, resistance training athletes and hypertrophy training athletes, which is some of them do not have the cardiovascular fitness to accumulate the amount of volume that they actually need to, to get muscle hypertrophy. At a beginner level, the amount of total volume that you need for muscle hypertrophy, it's not that high. Might be 10 sets per muscle group per week is more than enough to grow. It's not a huge training load, but when we start getting to these athletes who have a fat-free mass index of 25 plus, the amount of volume they need to do, it might be closer to 25 to 30 sets per muscle group per week. So if you add that up, 30 sets of biceps, 25 sets of triceps, 20 sets of chest and back work, 25 sets of quads, hamstrings, calves, some of them are doing 200 work sets per week, which is an absurd amount of volume. And unless you're sitting there resting five minutes between all your work sets and all of your workouts take three and a half hours, you're, need, you're going to need to condense some of these rest periods. And one of the things that you find with these individuals is when they're doing some of these slightly faster paced training sessions, at least that I've noticed is some of them, before even getting into Moxie, their peripheral oxygen saturations are getting extremely low. I have data from a professional bodybuilder that he sent me some of his work when we were consulting and he was tracking SpO2 his entire workout. And this was a workout that he was primarily doing like biceps, triceps, lateral delts, nothing systemic in nature. He was hovering at 90 to 93% peripheral oxygen saturation for that entire hour long workout. If I were at 90 SpO2, I would start to see spots and I would feel like I'm about to black out. So for him, with hypertrophy, we want to increase a local muscle's VO2. If your SpO2 is that low, you're truncating the arterial venous oxygen concentration difference. And in reality, he actually wasn't desaturating a lot of the local muscles as well, because he was so fatigued from a cardiometabolic standpoint that he's not actually able to put the work in to drive peripheral muscle fatigue. So for someone like that, that's at a very high level and they've already built a substantial amount of muscle in order for them to actually get to the point that they could even do the requisite volume to get additional muscle growth he has to train his cardiovascular system and his pulmonary system. That's the only option. And if they had something like a Pinoe or a Moxie or they were tracking these things preemptively, they probably would have known. The other thing that you see with a lot of these individuals is a large percentage of them have sleep apnea and their resting heart rates are incredibly high. Some of them walk around at 100 beats per minute throughout the entire day and they're very out of breath just walking upstairs um, they'll get very low peripheral desaturation just from walking for 10, 15 minutes. So for these individuals, like they don't like doing cardiovascular training, but that's one of the few things that they can do to really improve their health and make sure that they could actually stay at a competitive level for a very long time. 
and not develop um sleep apnea or not develop like a some kind of like cardiovascular issue as well as accumulate an effective amount of training volume. Yeah. And I mean, even the ability to recover between sets to actually shorten the duration of their entire workout, mm-hmm. uh, if they have that increased uh, respiratory and cardiovascular fitness. They have the, a better ability mm-hmm. to, to be able to recover. Yeah. Yeah. And what, one of the other things that you would see too, using something like Pinelli where you're getting their title volumes. I actually have a specific case study in mind. This is a bodybuilder, weighs about 300 pounds and we did some spirometry testing. FEC six was three and a half liters. So imagine like that body size, FEC six of three and a half liters, like just the total amount of muscle mass and stiffness. That's an issue waiting to happen. And this is an individual who already suffered from sleep apnea and had some respiratory issues. Yeah, that's so okay these are things like that a, a 70-year-old, 156 centimeter woman, but it's certainly not going to maintain that fellow. Yeah, and in those populations, it's so exaggerated too, because even in an endurance athlete who doesn't have a very large body mass, in some ways the lungs are underbuilt for the demands of extreme exercise. The chest wall can only expand so much. So even if you're gaining all of this muscle and you're getting cardiovascular adaptations and peripheral adaptations in your muscle, there aren't that many useful structural adaptations happening to the pulmonary system. So even for someone who doesn't have any of these severe health issues, if someone is getting very muscular and they have a very high fat-free mass index, even if they're a natural athlete and they're not using like anabolic androgenic steroids, they're still going to get to a point that their FEC6 is going to be low relative to their lean body mass. That's just the nature of being very muscular and having a fixed lung volume and not having a chest wall that could remodel. So it becomes increasingly more important as people get stronger and gain muscle that they actually track these things. They use spirometry, they use metabolic gas analysis, they get a pulse oximeter and they could wear that during their training sessions if needed. Well, I think your, your comment on sleep apnea is really quite interesting. I, obviously during an RMR or a 10 minute resting test, um, I, I see way too often breathing frequencies in the 20s to 30s with less than 0.5 of a liter per breath. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going, you know, I, I keep telling people, go to the fridge and get a small carton of milk. You're breathing that every time you breathe. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so much connection between uh, respiratory fitness and sleep apnea. So I, I've had great results on, on once I identify through metabolic analysis, prescribing the right respiratory training, you know, mm-hmm. mobility mixed with respiratory training. Um, mm-hmm. I have great results in which you can get people off of CPAP machines uh, on yeah. a regular basis, getting them, obviously getting their cardiovascular system more healthy as well at the same time, but really going hard after the respiratory system, it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, um, this has been this has been absolutely fabulous. Um, I think uh, would you describe for our guys? Uh, you have some wonderful education programs. How how do they get hooked up with your education programs? Yeah, so right now one of the the main course that I have to learn a lot of the concepts that we talked about today. I developed a course for Moxie Monitor through their Moxie Academy called the science and practice of performance enhancement with NEARS. So a lot of the material talking about how to use MOXIE for strength training and load management could be found and housed in there. Excellent. And uh, what about, uh, let's, let's, uh, if people want to get a hold of you, let's say they, you know, do you do testing for general population and training or? Yeah, I do do testing. I'm located um, in the Northeast. So obviously right now during COVID, um, a little bit limited on what I could do. Um, but outside of these circumstances, I do do testing. That is something I offer. And how would people get a hold of you? Uh, best way to get a hold of me would be uh, via email. So that's first and last name, Evan Pycon at gmail.com. So E V A N P E I K O N. Yep. At gmail.com. At gmail.com. Well, excellent. It, it, uh, what's up in the future? Are you working on something coming up? Yes, I have two unrelated things that I'm spending most of my research time on right now. One is modeling time to exhaustion with Moxie monitor and using NEARS. 
So if we think about like a critical power concept, it's essentially critical power that could be calculated in live time just using a moxie. So essentially seeing instead of using like a W balance formula that people might be familiar with in like the cycling or running world where it would say this is your W bell, this is your time to exhaustion. Instead, without much pre-testing data, we would be saying in live time, this is what your time to exhaustion is based on I'm trying to think how much I could say here. Based off of certain pretest data, we could do enough calculations to know what a critical energetic rate is for you, which is a surrogate of critical power, as well as what we would call like energy prime versus W prime, which is the finite amount of work you could do above your critical energetic rate. And we could see like a moving gas tank that's filling up and depleting as you work at a faster and slower rate than your critical energetic rate. Wow. And uh, I know uh, talking with Roger from Moxie, you guys are working on uh, on something that we've all been begging for for a long time, a, a platform, an app. Can you, <laughs> yeah. can, you share, can you share a little bit about what your hopes are for this? Yes. Yeah, so one of the biggest barriers to entry with Moxie up until now has been the available softwares to actually use the technology. Previously, um, it's only desktop or laptop based applications. So right now what we're working on is two different things. One is a Moxie iPhone and Android app, which will allow you to sync your Moxies up to an iPhone or Android phone, select whether you're doing a strength workout, endurance workout, interval workout, or free workout mode, and you could collect and stream data on live time. And then the second portion of that is what we're calling the Moxie portal, which is a web-based app that you could analyze your data and do different calculations and extract information from, and also share that data with coaches or friends or whoever you want to share that with. Excellent. Well, for, for those that are unaware, uh, Hanoi directly uh, syncs Moxie devices. So it, uh, you know, when, you, when you actually sync to our device using the Hanoi app, uh, we obviously also sync to heart rate monitor and we also have the capability of syncing to Hanoi uh, so that we can get SMO2 and THB live on our platform as well for analysis. And uh, I, I really enjoy doing that in the old days, you know, going in and using other software and having to export TXT and CSV files and <laughs> smash them together. Uh, yeah. Sure is nice going on the Pinoy platform and be able to just click SMO2 and THP and be able to see them there along with respiratory data, cardiovascular data mm -hmm. and, and all the VO2 and VCO2. So, um, I'm with you. I really uh, love the combination of metabolic analysis, gas analysis, and Moxie. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to learning more about resistance training with it. Um, I'm I would like to obviously uh, have you back again, and uh, I would I would like to uh, in module four of the metabolic analysis certification program. There is going to be a section on how to use their Moxie device, not only for um, testing uh, with Panoi uh, during a ramp test, but also the ability to get a basic idea of how to use it with resistance training. So mm -hmm. I, I look forward to you uh, hopefully taking part in uh, the education on that and then feeding them to you uh, for a much more in-depth view of it. Yeah, that would be excellent. Thank you. Right on. And, well, absolutely a uh, joy to have you on, Evan. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to continuing to work with you in the future. I look forward to it as well. Thank you again.